Hello, I'm Dr. Laura. Welcome to my podcast where work meets life. Do you find that when people ask how you're doing, one of your first answers tends to be, I'm so busy. That is so common. So many of us are feeling this sense of overload. We're operating with constant to-dos and the advent of so many technologies and social media has led us to feel even more overloaded. We're pulled in so many directions and continually face the challenge of how do we manage it all and how do we spot the priorities amidst this overload that so many of us are facing. And I know I feel this way personally, um, especially with my task list. And it's been an ongoing challenge and something I've really intended for 2023 is to finally master how to use my task list. So I thought I would talk to one of the world leading experts, if not the leading expert on productivity, which is Mr. David Allen. I had his book years ago, his first edition. Now his second edition is out, Getting Things Done. So the art of stress-free productivity. And his GTD stands for Getting Things Done Management System has helped countless individuals and organizations to make order out of chaos. The book is in 28 languages. It's been uh, a huge bestseller, like tens of thousands of copies, if not more in 28 languages, like I said, so used all over the world. And Time Magazine heralded it as one of the most influential self-help business books of its time. And that is no small accolade. So, David Allen, welcome to the show. Laura, thank you for the invitation. Delighted to be here. So I did that intro. Can you tell us a little more about yourself and, and your life? <laughs> I grew up not knowing what I wanted to do. I had so many options about things I could do and went to a very uh, uh, liberal arts college. And it gave me lots of opportunity to think about a lot of things I wanted to do. What I became most interested in was history, history of thought, history of why do we think about the way we think, and history of culture, history of sort of the, the, the paradigms. We didn't use the word back then, you know, uh, but that was the idea. It was paradigms that affected cultural, affected everything's in the culture. What were the models inherent in people's thinking that affected their performance, their experience, their perceptions, and all that. So I got very fascinated with that, got into graduate school in American intellectual history, Berkeley, 68, had a time to be there, and uh, then decided I wanted my own enlightenment instead of studying people who had theirs, so I dropped out of, I figured graduate school wasn't where I was going to find it, so I dropped out and then did all kinds of self-exploration, martial arts, meditation, spiritual practices, et cetera, to find out, okay, what's this bigger game? What's this bigger thing that we're all in? Because I had a sense that they were, that we were all part of a bigger game. And so I wanted to find out what that game was, because if you figured out the game, then you could do better, right? <laughs> if you know the game you're playing, then you can play better. But I just discovered there was a bigger game than just what we saw materially and physically. So I went into that, that exploration path. But again, didn't know what I wanted to do. You, they're not paying people to do that. <laughs> but you got to, you know, I had to pay the rent, so I had to, you know, had to, you know, manage this material, my material world. So I wound up. I had friends who knew what they wanted to do materially, 
and they were friends starting businesses, people doing whatever. And so I became a, so I just said, okay, well, let me see if I can get a job with them, helping them do what they do. And turned out I was a good number two guy. So I helped, that's where a lot of my jobs came from. I helped folks start a business. I used to help, help a guy manage the landscape from me. I, you know, yada, yada. If you can read my Wikipedia, you'll see all that. So that's, but I'd just walk in and go, well, how much easier can we do this? Because I'm Mr. Lazy. You know, Laura, come on, I'm the laziest guy you ever met. I'm like, why spend any more time doing anything you need to do if you can do it in shorter time so you can get onto the more cool stuff that you want to do? So I'd go in and look at what they were doing and say, okay, well, let's let's fix this. Let's fix that. Let's see if we can hand out that. Now they call that process improvement. Mm, yeah. Back then, I was just called, how can we leave earlier? So, <laughs> so, so. I did. I do that, and then help them I get get it set up. And then I get bored, and then you go get another gig. Then I discovered they they pay people to do that. They call them something consultant. Oh my god, I are one. I mean, I couldn't spell it. Now, so 1982 hung out my shingles. Allen Associates. I thought, well, maybe I could just sell myself on a project by project basis to help people sort of coordinate, organize, you know, manage the stuff of their business better. And I wound up making that work, but also because I was so, by that time, I was so enamored with clear space in my head, given martial arts, given spiritual and meditative practices or whatever. I said, but my world is now busier and more complex. It's kind of screwing up clear space. How can I keep the clear space while I'm doing all of that? And so I became hungry for myself personally for these techniques that help me stay clear. And I discovered one by one by one by one. This was not one morning epiphany. This was like a you know a, a decade of epiphanets. <laughs> Essentially, oh that works, mm -hmm, that works. But then everything I discovered, I would turn around and help my clients use those to help them focus more on the meaningful stuff, be more in control, be more you know uh, you know uh, comfortable about what they were doing. And it turned out. Every one of those techniques I had worked for every one of my clients exactly the same way, produced the same results. Then I had a big guy in the big corporate training world show up and say, gee, David, we need that in our whole corporation. Can you design some sort of a training program around what you've come up with? And so we can maybe reach a lot of people with at least your model of what you've done as opposed to one-on-one -on -one that you're doing right now. And so I did a very successful program. Uh, for a thousand managers and executives as a pilot program in Lockheed, 1983, 84. And so I, I suddenly found myself thrust into the corporate training world <laughs> with what I'd become uncovered with, you know. Now, Laura, I've never had any formal traditional education in time management, psychology, or business. It's all street smarts. So then somebody said, David, you ought to write the book. I said, oh, I gotta write a book. <laughs> what do I do? Okay. So then I took four years to then craft the, the manual of everything I'd learned in the 25 years prior to that. And that became the first edition of Getting Things Done. In 2001, right? The first edition came out. And the second one, 2015 or so? Yep. Yep. And so there's a very short version, a very long story. Sorry, it went longer than you might have wanted. But that was, if you ask me, 
how I got into this. That was that was it. That's a short short version. It's a big, broad question, isn't it? And I'm a career psychologist, so I had to ask it. But what stands out for me is you you grew organically and you grew through self insight and self reflection and applying the techniques to yourself first and foremost, and then they helped others. You know, and then tens of thousands of others, and then millions probably. Yep, three million of my books have been sold. So, you know, it's out there. Could have fooled me. I had no idea. I had no idea how popular the book would be. I just had to write it to get it out of my head and to create the manual in case it got run over by a bus. So, th- this book you you made the second edition in 2015. Since 2015, a, a lot's changed. We went through the pandemic, uh, and I think life continues to be increasingly complex. So. Is this, how is this book relevant today, and who is it relevant for? Anybody who wants to stay on top of their world and not feel buried by it, it's relevant today. That book is relevant for 100 years from now when we fly to Jupiter. That book was relevant in the Renaissance. There's, so all I did was boil it down to the zeros and ones of one of the basic principles of how do you stay focused and clear with lots of options, you know, about what you do. So, you know, it's a, it's pretty evergreen. You know, you can't, you can't, you can't punch a hole in this. You know, when we go to, when we fly to Jupiter, we still need an in basket that captures all the stuff we walk around on the spaceship and said, wow, that needs attention. We need to do something about that, but you can't finish it right then. You better park that somewhere. That's called an in basket. And then somebody sooner than later better pick that up and say, what do we need to do about that? What's the action step we need to take? Right, that's the clarify step. And then, the, if they can't finish it right then, they better organize that in some system that whoever the right people see at the right time to review, so that they engage appropriately to make sure they get to Jupiter. Those are the five steps I uncovered. I didn't make them up. I just dis- uncovered, discovered, and then objectified how you get your kitchen under control, how you get your consciousness under control. Five steps. You you grab the stuff that has your attention, but. You know, you need to do something or decide or do something about it. You then clarify exactly what you need to do about it, if anything. You need to organize the results of that thinking in some sort of coherent external brain, not your not your not your head. Your head's a crappy office. So as soon as you then put those those things in the appropriate list, the appropriate places, then you need to review them appropriately so that then whatever you do, you're doing from a trusted choice. Not from a, gee, I hope this is right, but I got a lot of other stuff that I haven't thought about. So, sorry, I, I, just, I just preached to you. That's the totality of how do you use this methodology to make sure you get control and focus. And I love your quote here. Your mind is for having ideas, not for holding them. Can you tell us more about that quote? Well, that's cognitive science proven now. I discovered that experientially 40 years ago. Somebody had me empty my mind and then make decisions about what I emptied out of my mind. And I went, wow, that was transformational. So that's been a core part of my methodology for 40 years. But now in the last 10 years, the cognitive scientists have basically proven that the number of four things you can, the number of things you can keep in your head to remind, remember, or try to manage before you start to lose cognitive, you know, uh, excellence, it's four. If you got more, four, more than four things on your mind, Laura, right now that you need to handle, manage, take care of, deal with, whatever, personal, professional, what it doesn't matter, you won't be able to take a test as well. 
You won't be able to be as present with your kids. You won't be able to be as present in this interview. If those things haven't been captured, clarified, and organized in some sort of trusted place that your mind can let it go. And that's all I discovered was this algorithm about how do you get your head clear so you can be clear whatever with whatever you're doing. I love it. And even in the night, so many people wake up in the night with the to-do list, and that's because it's not captured, right? It's not. That's right. It's just living in here, in your brain. Yeah. And you see, that part of you has no sense of past or future. So buy cat food or buy or hire a vice president, have the same amount of cognitive space when you're lying in bed. <laughs> so uh, tell me, you know, give me some rational reason why you haven't, you know, sort of externalized those things and sorted them appropriately. Absolutely. And I think the sorting devices have changed, right? The cloud-based apps, et cetera, that weren't there in the 80s. <laughs> now there's those, but it's the same. It's the same principles regardless of the storage method. The principles won't change. The technology will change weekly. Come on, it is. But, the, but how to use the technology won't change. You need to decide whether you're going to use Slack or Asana or, or, or Microsoft Teams or whatever to manage and what's coming across those new channels. That's one of the biggest issues right now is the channels that are increasing. They're giving you that much more stuff that you need to then look at, think about, decide what to do with that. Where does that go in, in the inventory of all my stuff I need to do? So what's changed is the speed of change and the number of channels and the volume and speed. So those things have all increased. You know, that's why I wrote the second edition, even back in 2015 was because, you know, when I wrote the first edition, it was in 20, you know, in, in 2000, uh, you know, our audience was primarily the fast track professionals that were starting to get with the tsunami of email and, and corporate change and flattened organizations and so forth. And so they were bidding, they were, they were having a much more of a challenge of how did they manage themselves because they couldn't just show up in the office and be told what to do and make that clear and they had to keep thinking about that this is knowledge work we have to think about what you need to do and so all that did the the change in the book was not the change in methodology the change was the audience whereas in 2001 the top 10 percent in your organizations were probably the people who were most hungry for this you know by 2015 it was 90 percent of your organization needed this now with remote working and hybrid work and whatever all that you got to trust. You got a lot of people out there that better, better heck handle themselves really well, because you don't have, you can't handhold them. You can't walk around and see if they're actually working at their desk. You've got to trust these people have some self management capability to bring to the table that you can trust. Mm -hmm. And not all of us are are struct naturally structured. This is not always natural, but it's a habit and a set of practices and habits that you can learn that anyone can learn. Exactly. Oh, they're easy. Everybody's already doing versions of it. If you leave something in front of your door to not forget it in the morning when you walk out the door, you're already doing this. If you keep a calendar, you're already saying, my mind can't do this well. I'd rather have some sort of a system that tells me where I need to be when. So people are already doing versions of what this process is, which is externalizing and clarifying what your commitments are and then parking reminders in the appropriate places so you see them at the right time. And I feel this can, I mean, people with ADHD, it's increasingly common. Would you agree over the last decade? 
Well, most 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 adults in the knowledge work world have ADHD, some version of that. I'm, I'm so distracted. I can I suddenly want to go off here. I don't want to deal with this. Let me play a computer game. You know, but, you know, people are li- living in a world of distractibility and the stress of infinite opportunity. So, yeah, you know, ADD and ADHD. Those are you know those those can be potentially clinical issues that you have to deal with that way. So I'm not an expert in that world, although there are a lot of people that are experts in that world that say everybody ought to read David's book <laughs> because this will this will take a lot of the pressure off of those people that keep being distracted by things because. I even know a lot of high tech people, Laura, that have gone back to paper based because they're ADHD kind of people, and more than one click on your iPhone or your computer, they won't do. They don't have the patience. They don't have the tolerance. But a paper based in their face, oh, write it down. That's quick. See it. That's quick. You know, it's actually easier for them to deal with a paper based system. For some of them, no, I'm not voting for either one. I've used both you know, both paper and digital systems. And either of them can work as long as you know how to work them. And as long as you do it regularly, (laughs) right? Like utilize it regularly. Sure. It's a habit, right? I said a habit. Well, there are habits that you have to build about all of this. You know, the habit of writing anything down that you make any potential commitment about or have any potential interest in and getting it out of your head the minute you have that idea is a huge habit for most adults to change. Huge. You walk down the hall and say, hey, Laura, will you handle that? Oh, sure. And you don't write that down right then. You're screwed. Yeah. And I notice my short-term memory isn't what it used to be. You know, three kids later, 22 years of a you know, as a psychologist, etc. Yeah, just a lot in this head, and my memory doesn't save as much. Well, no, your your memory has a no. You you have a lot more. You have a lot bigger database that you have to filter it through. So give yourself a break. It's not that you're losing short term memory. It's just that you got so many things that may pop into short term memory relative to this thing, and you need to make sure that you can sort it appropriately. And so. But again, you know, I, I forget what I had this for breakfast this morning. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, but at 77, that, I, I think that tends to happen in terms of just, you know, the short term, those short term things. Absolutely. So what's the biggest surprise from writing this book? Surprise or learning, you know, 20 some odd years later? I guess, I don't know, a couple. One is how absolutely uh, transformational it's been for how many people on the planet and the feedback we get is just phenomenal. I just wanted to write it to get it out of my head. I didn't know whether anybody would pick it up or not or use it. But the first weekend when I got published by Penguin, you know, years ago in 2001, and I got an email the next weekend from some lady who bought it at Barnes and Noble. She said, David, I read your book. I implemented it. Changed my life. I went, oh my God, you mean? I can actually get what's kind of in my head and in my experience out in some sort of a virtual format. And it actually has value that people can pull out of that. That changed my life, really. Because I thought once I wrote the book, I've done it. You know, I figured I basically cataloged everything I've learned in my 25 years. Uh, but then, wow, I guess a whole lot of other people might want to learn and how to figure out how to, how to do this. So, you know, since then, our job has been trying to, how do we scale this? 
as an educational model because it does nothing but improve people's lives. So how could we help but improve people's lives as best we can? So that's a lot of what my work has been is since then is doing that. So a lot of the big surprise was a how many people at how sophisticated a level have picked up on this and done phenomenal things with their own lives and b how hard it is to implement. How hard it is to implement. Yeah. Tell me more. Well, it's going to take you about three minutes to great value. Hey, Laura, take the five things most on your mind right now when you and I stop talking. You know, should we adopt or not? Should we get divorced or not? Should we hire a vice president or not? Uh, what about the book I want to write? Uh, oh, do we need cat food? Whatever. <laughs> right. Capture all that in as many things as you can in the next two or three minutes. And then take each one of them and go, what's the next action I would need to take to resolve this or clarify this, if anything? And then make those decisions and write those down. You're going to feel incredible value. You'll feel a lot more relaxed, focused, in control of your life. So it's not rocket science unless you're building rocket. But it's, that's, you know, these are simple things to do, but you can do that right away. So you don't need right away. You don't need to wait a long time to get value out of these principles and these techniques. But to make those habitual so that you're in the grocery store, you think, oh, God, I need to, that's something I might want to put in my book, that you pull out something like I have had for 40 years, and you write that down so that your brain is not sitting, oh, you know, Laura, what are you going to do about that? What are you going to do about that? Oh, by the way, and even though it left your conscious mind because you were focused on other things, it's still spinning in there. That little monkey is still scrambling around in there, three o'clock in the morning. Oh my God, I had an idea. What was it? I forgot. Yeah. And that's what keeps us up at night is the spinning ideas, to do's, tasks that aren't captured, right? That aren't. And when you're in the middle of the night, you're not in a good place to think of the next action or like logically what I'm going to do. You're, you're spinning, right? Right. Right. So in, in terms of this, what mistakes or lost opportunities um, is poor work-life management costing people? Well, they're feeling overwhelmed at work, which is affecting their personal life. They're feeling overwhelmed in their personal life, which is affecting their work life. <laughs> Pretty simple. Because right? they're not applying what I just said to either or both of those. And you have to apply them to both. If you haven't decided what to do about the plumbing that's screwed up in your bathroom, it's going to bother you at work and distract you from focusing on other things. If you're bothered at work by, gee, uh, how do we handle this next staff meeting? Who's going to manage that and whatever? And you haven't handled that, so it's off your mind. It's going to bug you at home. So work-life balance is a hoax. I don't like that term either. Why do you think it's a hoax? It's just balance. I've met some people and worked with clients that had interns who dedicated themselves for two years to be at the side of this person. This is the Foreign Policy Institute, literally at their side, traveling around the world daily, weekly, whatever, and just capturing everything and just being there. This was a 24-7 job. They had no personal life. Now, they had, you know, they, they would relax and do some things. Personally, but they, you know, they weren't married. They didn't have a house. They didn't have any of that other stuff. They dedicate their career to two years of that kind of work. Why? Because at the end of those two years, they could write their ticket. 
about what they could do, but it was worth their investment. So what was balance for them? Something that somebody else would say, well, gee, that's not balanced because they, they didn't have a, they didn't have a family. They didn't have, no, no, it was balanced because they were actually engaged the way they wanted to be engaged in order to go where they wanted to go. So work life, how would you tell them about work-life balance? It's too prescriptive, yeah. Yeah, well, they're getting enough sleep so they can deal with their boss, you know, the next day, or, you know, don't drink too much so they can your your conscious in the meeting, you know, next tomorrow. So, yeah, so there are, you're obviously, you know, uh, details and things you need to deal with so that you can then maintain whatever it is that, that you're doing. But what that might look like could look like a lot of different things, trust me. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And I think it's about wellness being well in, in your work, your life, your physical, mental, emotional, spiritual being, all of it. That's wellness. And it's a constant work in progress for all of us. Well, you know, to me, I mean, I, I hate to boil it down to the simplicity. It's called how comfortable are you about what you're doing right now? Are you okay with it? Are you feeling, oh, God, there are other should things I should be on or whatever? So, you know, my whole methodology was about getting appropriate engagement with your life. It wasn't about working harder or being busier. Getting things done is not really about getting things done. It's about clarifying the things that, that you have some investment in making happen and then being appropriately engaged with them. I don't know my life purpose. What should I do? How would you figure that out? I don't know. Well, you know, who could help you know? Great. What do you need to do? Are you appropriately engaged with figuring out what your life purpose is? You want to give yourself five years to figure it out? Great. <laughs> Why not? Okay. And then just put it in your calendar five years from now. Put figured out life purpose yet, dude? Question mark. And you go, I'm fine. Let me just hang for five years and see what shows up. That's appropriate engagement. So it's not about some template or some rule about how many things you need to do when or where. You need to go, well, what's got my attention? What would I need to do to get that off my mind so I'm clear and present with, with life presently? Awesome. Well, I've really appreciated this discussion on getting things done to alleviate stress and overwhelm and what the GTD methodology is all about. I mean, you've, you've taught us a lot of nuggets today, and I think you've generated some interest definitely in this tried and true book and methodology. And we've gotten to know you more, David. And I, I find that just fascinating, your life story and how you've evolved as a human being, as an influencer, as a helper and difference maker to so many people on earth. So thank you for that. My pleasure. Thanks for asking. Yeah. And in two weeks from now, we're going to dive further into making space in our lives for what matters. So we're going to talk further about purpose and, and finding space for your inner voice and your inside time and, and talk more uh, to David about this, this very interesting arena that we all are dealing with. So I look forward to that uh, next conversation with you, David. Me too. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Where Work Meets Life. If you enjoyed this content, please rate and review the podcast as that helps me get it out to more people. Visit my website at drlaura.live and sign up for my monthly e-newsletter full of tips and resources. 
Please engage with us on social media and check out the podcast summary for links to my psychology practices, Canada Career Counseling, Calgary Career Counseling, and Synthesis Psychology. Stay well.